Hi, I'm Heather Morrison. On each show, guests share stories from their lives in theater, film, and TV. So grab your tights and tap shoes and meet the geeks in the green room. My guest in this episode is Angie Flynn MacGyver, director and producer. In 2001, she and her husband Charlie founded the North Carolina Stage Company, a 127-seat off-Broadway-style professional equity theater. Angie is also the founder and president of Ignite CSP, which helps clients improve their communication skills. I learned about Angie through a mutual friend in our podcasting community, Lana Camiel. Angie and I were going to have a short get-to-know-you call, but I hit the record button early in our conversation because it was getting interesting fast. Check out the show notes for more information about Angie. My theater background in a nutshell is um, I started out as an actor and I acted all the way through college. I got a, a deg- uh, my undergraduate degree is in theater. And about halfway through college, I realized that I, I didn't really want to be an actor. Like I got to, I got up to the point where like everybody was graduating and starting to talk about moving to New York and getting agents and going to open calls and standing in lines. And I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't actually want to do that. Um, and fortunately I'd already been directing for a couple of years. So I decided that that was going to be my path. And so I did not direct men act again. My last real show was my senior year in college. And then I've done a couple bits and pieces since then, but, um, nothing in years and years and years and years. Um, but I really decided to be a director and I, that is what I did. So I moved to New York the day after I graduated from uh, college. I, um, made a bunch of contacts in New York and worked in a bunch of different places, including the national Shakespeare company. Wow. And then, um, I really cobbled together experience over over my years in New York. And um, in 2001, my husband and I were both North Carolina natives, uh, but we met in New York. Um, we decided to move <clears throat> back to North Carolina and start our, our equity theater, which is what we did. Um, so we moved in 2001. We opened our theater in 2002. And that, I mean, that's been... That's what we have done. I mean, that theater has been, North Carolina Stage Company has been um, in constant operation, except for right now, since uh, April of, uh, of 2002. Wow. I mean, it's like even like the actor story. As soon as college was gone, I went to New York. I mean, literally. I, I, did. I did. I did. I did. I did not know any better. Seeing the Annie song, <laughs> we get off the bus. No, <laughs> uh, yeah. It was, it was the airplane, but... Uh, that's fantastic. So is your theater pivoting in any way? Like, is it, are you doing any kind of recordings or uh, have you found your podcast? Like, is it a director speaks or something like that? Or, um, um, no, I, so a few years ago, gosh, um, almost 15 years ago now, I started my own pivot. So I, uh, started doing communication skills coaching and, that's been really my full-time job for the last 10 years. I run a company with uh, a roster of coaches and we really use the, um, I call it, you know, we're, we're as actors and directors, we are detectives of human behavior. And so we really use the process that I might use when I'm 
directing actors on stage to bring that kind of clear and effective communication to people who are not actors. <clears throat> so I've been doing that uh, really full time for 10 years. And uh, all of this is to say that my, the, my podcast ideas are more in that realm than in the theater realm, although there is obviously a lot of crossover. Mm -hmm. um, my husband runs the theater full time with our staff and uh, it is pivoting. Um, we uh, <laughs> were sort of trying to figure out, you know, we were looking at what a lot of other theaters were doing. And the, the place where we are right now is that we are looking at um, doing one person shows that are in the theater that happen live. And we can, because we're an equity theater, we, and because of other limitations, we can only sell as many quote unquote tickets as there are seats in our theater. But so we would sell um, that many uh, basically zoom tickets. And then what we've been experimenting with is setting up really big screens in the, in the house so that the performer on stage can look out and see the audience, see the people who have zoomed in for the performance. That and so cool. it's very cool. And it really makes a huge difference for the performer, as you can imagine, because they can actually see what's happening in real time and, and that you don't feel like you're just performing into a void. Um, so we've been talking about this and he's been running all these tests for months. And then last night we turn on TV to watch the return of the NBA. And that's essentially exactly what they're doing. They're mm -hmm. having um, fans like 300 fans can buy a ticket to be in the arena and have their, their, you know, zoom face in the arena. <laughs> mm -hmm. So um, yeah, so we're obviously not the only ones with the idea, but I think it's going to, it's going to be really interesting. And at least, give us that um, that sense of something live is happening that can't be recreated another time. That's not, um, that's not film. It's not a, a recording of a performance. It's actually something happening right now. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially what theater is. It's real time experience shared by actors as telling a story basically, and people take going on that journey with them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. That's yeah. very exciting. And yeah, and we weren't willing to compromise on that. I mean, the, the thing that we sort of kept coming back to was film is already a thing. That's already an art form. That's not what we do. It's a wonderful art form, but it's really different from theater. So starting to try to approximate that just feels almost like you're creating a, a souvenir of what theater can be without getting the thing that is that is at the heart of it and that is so magical. Mm-hmm. Given that that is the case, are you at all interested in doing replays for people who can't buy a ticket? Like we won't be able to do that. Um, the, oh. the, our, our, our contract with the union and our royalties will prevent us from um, making recordings available just like they would mm. in, any, in any other situation where, where we are prohibited from, from doing that. Because I know they've done it with some Broadway shows, like I know they were showing on PBS, She Loves Me, which I missed, unfortunately, it's one of my favorite musicals. Mm -hmm. And and there's there's other stuff. I mean, Shakespeare's a little bit different, because it's really old. But <laughs> I know that they're doing that, because people can't get to live theater. So how are they able to do that? 
Well, my, I don't know that the intricacies of their, obviously their, their royalty. Um, my guess would be that in order to do that, you are paying um, some kind of lump sum royalty payment. And ideally you're paying your, your performers that they're getting some sort of residual from the work that they did. That's now being distributed. Um, That's, I mean, just economically, that's going to be out of reach for almost every regional theater. I mean, what you're talking about is giant Broadway productions, which are commercial productions. Mm -hmm. um, Whereas, you know, theaters like ours, most of the theater in the United States is nonprofit. So um, it's just a, a completely different economic and business model. Yeah, and it's good to know because I think people would be interested in knowing how they could see a show. Yeah. They can't. They and so how many live performances will they do like like will they do a yeah. rap? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the idea, right? So that's right? a great question. And I, I think our so typically we do a three or four week run um with five or six shows a week. And um so th- there are kind of a, a couple different variables going on here. One is if you can buy a ticket and and zoom in and watch the show, um, we tip we we theoretically have a much greater audience reach than we would just here in Asheville, North Carolina, right? Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> ideally, you know, I can email you and say, Heather, that thing that we were talking about, it's happening, and you can buy a ticket right here and you could zoom in and watch a show. So may our funnel, our marketing funnel might actually get bigger. We may be able to reach theater lovers all over the world. Um, at the same time though, we are limited to the number, as I said, the number of seats that we have in the theater. So we'll just have to see, you know, how does that play out? Do we do a two week run? Do we do a three week run? What does the, and because this is completely unknown, um, you know, we could discover we have way more supply than demand or hopefully the other way around. That's really exciting, actually, um, depending on how how your marketing can reach, you know, mm-hmm. not what your normal market is, but it sounds like, you know, how to do that. And you took <laughs> Well, <laughs> you let's hope that so. golden glass. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. Just have to apply all those lessons. Wow. That's really exciting. It makes my mind kind of go. Um, so has the process of preparing a show changed? It, you've, have you, how many times have you done it? Have you done it like once? Zero. <laughs> oh, you're, so you're just, so you're preparing. Oh, that's right. You said your husband was doing tests. So yeah, preparing the technology and do you have a, do you have a show on deck? Um, we do. We, we do. We have um, a one person show. This is, um, I don't know that we're under contract yet, so I won't say what it is, but it's somebody we've worked with in the past who's really wonderful. And, um, but what I can tell you that we know already from these, from, we did have one event that we used this setup for, and it was essentially a check-in with our subscribers and our patrons to say, you know, here's what's going on with us. We want to see your faces. We want to touch base with you and connect. And, um, and it took um, days of work to make sure that the lights were right for the cameras to set the monitors up, to, um, run the projector cables through the laptops to the, I mean, just making sure all of these, these technological elements uh, were in place and we're going to work relatively seamlessly. Our stage manager was, um, was, was troubleshooting on zoom 
as opposed to being up in the booth and, and calling cues. We had a house manager who was monitoring our email and our social media to see if there was anything that she needed to do to help people get into this event. Um, but what I can tell you that we learned from that was people are really hungry for theater. They really want to be in connection with each other. And the coolest moment for me, because I was at home, I wasn't at the theater. I was, um, I was dialing in just like everybody else. So we, we went into, you know, the, the, the Zoom waiting room, except it was our lobby. You know, it was like, welcome to the North Carolina Stage <laughs> Company lobby. And, um, and then that moment happened where we all got let in. And so you, you just saw these familiar faces, you know, um, actors that we've worked with for years or subscribers who we always see in the lobby or ushers who have volunteered for us for a long time, board members, um, staff members who don't work for us anymore and have moved other places across the country. And it was just, I mean, it was like a reunion. It was so wonderful to get to, um, to experience this even virtually. It was really great. That's really exciting. It's very moving. I mean, I feel very moved by it. I'm like, oh, look at, you know, Joe, who's in California. Exactly. Exactly. in New York, you know, it's, that's really yeah. incredible. Yeah, it was cool. My mind is exploding with the uh, different things that you could do. I mean, you can't, you can't make more money, but maybe, I mean, from the production itself, but maybe you could have wild card, um, or drawings or something mm -hmm. so people get let in first or they get to talk to the act like a small group that gets to talk to the actor that's smart like a, yeah like absolutely. A talk, like a talk back or whatever mm -hmm. um that would be kind of cool to do a live talk back with them yeah you know. absolutely and we've and we've talked about that too i didn't think of the drawing idea we've definitely talked about a talk back um just how can we what can we do on the with the the technology the platforms we have available to get as close to creating that connection as possible because that's, that's mm -hmm. why, you know, that's why we do this. You could do making of, you can give a uh, virtual tours of your theater with the yeah. magic oh, happens. Great idea. Oh, great idea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love all that stuff. <laughs> I, I can see the sparks are flying. I love it. Yeah. But I know you have like, you're, you're very seasoned. So mine is definitely from the, the amateur of the best possible version of that word. That's, that's where I'm coming from is that, yeah. that, that total excitement. I used yeah. to, I remember like I would go to a show and I'm like, I did not want to talk because it was uh, this huge sensory immersion experience for me to sit there in my seat listening to people talk. And in fact, I wanted them to shut up, but then it became part of this, you know, before it starts, you know, and then the orchestra starts because I love musicals, you know, mm -hmm. the tuning up and the lights coming down and all yep. of that is just so visceral. And um, anything that you could recreate that for people. And maybe you could do some sort of, uh, I don't, I don't know what kind of material it is, if it's not suitable for kids, but maybe you could have, have one kid type friendly Section, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Really bring them into the craft, like how we put the makeup on, and this is what mm -hmm. a dressing room looks like, and yeah, this is what we do in rehearsals, and it's an opportunity for education. And there's such an immediacy of being able to take somebody onto the stage and look out into right. the audience and that right. kind of thing. Like you could create like huge super fans at the theater 
act people who want to become actors because of what you do. You know, it's right. an important job. It is. So, it is. I think actors are amazing. They are. <laughs> so that's a big project you have going. Are you close to kind of nailing down the technology? Yeah, I think we're I think we're good on the technology. We're just um the issues now are are really logistical in terms of um lining up uh this one particular actor for this show and then looking at what other productions might be feasible. I mean, you you know, you don't want to just do five one-person plays. What are some other what are some ways we can uh, vary that? There are some ways that we can make sure that we're <laughs> we're offering something new. Yeah, I guess the technology could, if you could figure out how to do a show live from people's, see, I was talking to a friend about how she could shoot her web series and the material sometimes can lend itself, you know, depending, Mm -hmm. especially if it was suspenseful or, uh, I can't can't think of the word right now, but if you had them shooting from their home, you know, Mm -hmm. like. Sometimes some things are based with phone calls, you know, they're phobic phone call or they're isolated, they're agoraphobic and there's another Mm -hmm. person. So you could have a split screen. So you could probably figure out some sort of technology where you're shooting. So they're far enough apart or whatever. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the other thing that we are going to run into a little bit is because we're an equity theater where we have to, if we're going to use union actors, yeah, we have to, there's, you know, certain guidelines that we have to be able to follow. So there are some questions about that too. You know, one thing that we thought about is, um, ca- you know, you could have a, a two person show if those people already live together. So we have ah. several friends who are acting couples. And so that could be a possibility if you choose the right, the right um, vehicle. Yeah. Isn't there, there's a no coward uh, play, two person play. I don't think it's supposed to be very good. <laughs> Something about love letters. That's not the name of it, though. Do you know what I'm talking about? I can't um, remember. I think it's I think it's Noel Coward. It's not Cole Porter. Sometimes I, for some reason, those two guys are married in my head, and they're not. Oh yeah, that makes total sense to me. <laughs> um, yeah, this be interesting. Yeah, that's a very interesting idea. Are even actors who live together in a house? Right, exactly. So yep. you, could, you could leverage that, but that's a yeah, that's a great idea. And theater is actually kind of a perfect way to do that because you have this one, you have this one place, so it's bound by place, even if you change the set. So it seems like that would be even easier than say, you can't adapt a sweeping action film to <laughs> to I think you know easily. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Um, but you could do some very interesting theater, stick them in a car, you know, somebody's mm-hmm. them outside their car, they got masks on or one doesn't have. A right, right, right. Or, Great point. Yep. So anyway, I'm sure there's, I don't, I don't know what the material is. Maybe you could even get a, um, uh, have some brand new material commissioned mm-hmm. that is COVID friendly. <laughs> I know, I know, I know right. That, so well, I mean, we we haven't, but these are new times. I mean, I, I think that's yeah. part of the point is that we we have to step into this new reality and figure out what we have to offer and what we want to bring to our community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think it's wonderful that you develop this other coaching practice. 
I mean, it sounds like your life is overflowing, but it's, you have it because you can certainly do that uh, by Zoom. Were Were you already probably doing it by Zoom or some other kind of well, we were mostly in person. I mean, so I would say 85% of our work was in person. So oh. when um, when everything happened in March, about, gosh, almost all of our work uh, was canceled or postponed for the rest of this year. Um, but a lot of, we have picked up more, you know, more virtual coaching and, and we had already been working in the in the virtual platform, but of course now that's really exploding. It really is, and it uh, it also increases your reach again because if it's not bound by the physical, you could be coaching somebody in England or India yeah. or <laughs> Finland. Exactly. Or, yeah. 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 Exactly. It's kind of exciting. Um, it is exciting. It's a little. It can be a little overwhelming when you feel like the funnel <laughs> suddenly got really huge. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so narrowing that down is is part of the work, but that is exciting. Right. right. I suppose you could put a few more hoops for people to to jump through before they get to you. Or have you developed any kind of programs that doesn't require you to be live that could help them with some of what you normally do live? You know, I played with that idea. And I mean, the short answer to your question is no, I haven't done that. Um, the, the somewhat the medium sized answer is there there is a lot of um there are a lot of resources online that are more passive um, that are, you know, an online course that you can take that um, walks you through. Here are some things you can do to be a better public speaker. Mm-hmm. Um, my feeling is that what my company offers is it is so important that uh, that you get tailored feedback about what you're great at and what you can improve mm-hmm. that. Um, that that's one part of it. And then the other part of it is hardly anybody can just look at an online set of slides with some narration and actually leave that experience with a new skill. Mm -hmm. There is something in between though. You could teach live, mm -hmm. but have it be like small groups. We've done that. We've done that. And that, that. okay. That's great. And that's just like actors. They learn from each other from watching. That's right. And that's a, that's actually a terrific model. We love the like small group coaching cohort model. We do that a lot. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, It's fun. If you had bigger groups, because I know that's that uh, the personal touch sounds really important to you, but you could have breakout rooms. You could leverage, you leverage the technology. It's not that you're replacing yourself, but that they're getting feedbacks, having that opportunity to get input from, from people as long as you teach them like the structure, like when I was taking writing classes, you, it wasn't a free for all. We were taught how to give feedback or how yeah. to ask for certain kinds of feedback is really important because you get to say, oh, I really liked what you did. You know, it's gotta be like, I noticed that you looked at three people and that's excellent. I felt like you were talking just to me or what, right. whatever the, the goal is. Yeah, absolutely. And that that is definitely something that we're that we're playing with. I mean, I'm happily I don't work by myself. I have a, a whole slew of other coaches who work with me. So even when we're um, in a workshop format, if we go to a breakout group, typically, I mean, we, we've done a couple things that are big enough where we can't each group can't have a coach. But um, mm-hmm. ideally, somebody will go um, into the breakout rooms with them and 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 
coach that small group. And Mm -hmm. exactly as you said, you know, as long as we give people really specific guidance about here's how to have this discussion, here's how to give this feedback. It's, I think it's very productive. Yeah. And I forgot that you had this whole staff. So you have a lot on your plate and well, thank you for taking so much time to talk. Yeah, I mean, sure. I figured if we, if we talk a little bit longer, we could just make this an episode and then I don't have to whatever you think. I have another call at two, but I'm yours until then. Okay. Is there anything else that you want to just share with people about what you're doing or thinking about doing or, you know, one thing, one thing I would love to, to get into a little bit is, um, is not a new thought, but that one thing that I think a lot of people have been grappling with in the last five months is, um, what does it mean to connect with other people and what does it mean um, to be alone? You know, we're, we're really re, uh, we're really dealing with these questions in a completely different way. And, you know, I, I, when, as a communication skills coach, part of really the, the bedrock of my job is to help people connect with each other. And of course, that's the bedrock of my job as a theater director and producer. You know, how do I create an environment? How do I create an experience? How do I tell a story? How do I um, make it so that everybody is feeling that moment of lift and that moment of connection and that moment of transcendence when the music swells, when the curtain goes up, when the lights go down, whatever it is, right? And one of the things that I have been thinking about a lot uh, just since we've all kind of taken to our homes is how do we continue to connect um, and, and what's it going to look like on the other end? What, and and again, this is not a a unique uh, question that I'm asking, but what are we finding about connection right now that is going to be important to us to take forward in when we go back into some semblance of normality. And a few things have come up for me around that. And one of them is I just talk to people who I care about so much more than I did before. My, my life has um, changed and expanded in a way that taking time to talk to other people is a real priority. and. It, it doesn't feel like a task. It doesn't feel like um, something I have to check off a list. And I just, I wonder, uh, I wonder if I'm alone in that. I wonder if other people are finding that too, if um, that, that sense of, of looking for connection has become really important for them. It's a really important topic. And it makes me think about how I'm trying to connect. Um, my dad is 94. And he, and I mentioned in an email to you that he's not, he's not well. And it doesn't matter at what time of your life that your health isn't good. You know, these people, you know, are important to you. And um, I I hadn't been seeing my dad very often for several years. And so I've seen him now a couple times since he's gotten out of the hospital. So I don't have anything that I feel like I need to say to him. I just want to kind of be around him. And, you know, my family is on my mind yeah. a lot. So so when I talk to people, I'm working out of my home, doing my admin stuff. 
when I get to talk to somebody during the day, it's a lifeline. It's like, oh, a person, <laughs> a real person, you know, you talk right. more, it's a pleasure to like talk to somebody and connect with somebody. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I, I think, um, yeah, I think, I think it's going to be very interesting to see how we're all changed from this experience, frankly. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's going to, unfortunately, be a short thing. I don't think we're just going to get through a pandemic in a year. No. I think that it's going to roll out over time. It's going to be a while. Um, and I hate to say we're just getting started. <laughs> I feel like I'm an alcoholic and I have to take one day at a time kind of thing. I'm not an alcoholic, but you, you know what I mean? It's like, otherwise, mm-hmm. it would be oppressive if we right. I agree. anything. You know, so I think being yeah. creative and connecting with people feels even more important uh, for our sanity and our health and our well-being. Yeah, you know, I was um, I, I obviously I'm connected with a, a number of of different theater professionals across the country, and there's um, the artistic director of the Guthrie put out a video, um, oh, this must have been two or three months ago by now. And um, it was really interesting to me. And again, he's somebody I've known for a while since before he went to the Guthrie. He was at um, Playmakers Rep here in North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And before that, I think I knew him in Knoxville. Anyhow, none of that is relevant. Um, Name's Joe Hodge, and he made this video. And what really struck me about it was that he talked about uh, how long it was going to be until we were able to be in a rehearsal room again, and how people who make theater are bereft. We don't we don't have this this critical component of our, of our creativity is, I mean, we, we literally talk about it, about being in the room and what happens in the room and leaving it in the room. And, um, everything is environmental or, you know, we talk about the space and we talk about, you know, everything is, um, physical. And that doesn't mean we can't, to your point, bring our, bring our creativity and bring our innovation to other platforms and other ways of doing it. But for me, there is some, um, really crucial serendipity that happens in the room. There is, uh, I was talking to an actor on a, on another call earlier today and, and I was saying, you know, it, it feels to me like being in rehearsal and making theater is my first language. And, um, and anyway, I, I bring this up to say that, I, that the thing that really struck me about that video was how <laughs> sad he was when he thought about, uh, he kind of channeled this moment of thinking about not being in his own rehearsal rooms and then that being true for so many of us across the country. And we are resilient people, (laughs) you know, um, we're, we'll figure it out and it's going to be okay one way or another. But, um, I think not for me. And, and I guess in, in this moment, I'm talking to the other the other theater practitioners and theater lovers who listen to your podcast, um, we're, we're really missing something. And there is a real grief around that, that at least for me is something that um, 
I'm not sure I, I gave enough weight at the beginning when this was, was happening, but as time has gone on, I've really noticed it. And, um, anyway, I'm just, I'm thinking about all of us. Yeah. There's something irreplaceable about the recipe of whoever ends up being cast, whoever's working backstage and it evolves over the period of, of the rehearsal into performance as the performances and the, the, the shows ripen and develop and then it ends and it literally does. It's amorphous, you know, it's ephemeral after Mm -hmm. that it it's gone. You could, you could record it and you wouldn't pick up the flavor. I mean, I, it's hard for me to explain, but there's a part of my brain that's nonverbal and it's, it's related to all those elements, you know, the smell of the theater, you know, the, the way actors move around each other. And I've worked in some really small theaters where the hallway was the dressing room and where Mm -hmm. you put your makeup on and everybody was in there until they moved the guys back on the, on a, on a deck outside in the back of the theater under a tarp, you know? And so you were rubbing up against each other, which of course we can't do right now in a way that was very convivial and, you know, family, like even the people that you might not like very much, you know, is Mm -hmm. all part of the soup. And that is a big part of something that we just can't have right now. and won't have for a while. Yeah. I like, I like that description of the soup. I think that's right. And I think, I mean, as soon as you said that, that, that kind of crystallized a thought for me, which was, you know, when we're all in our Zoom boxes, we can make something cool, but there's not that, there's no soup, right? Because we're divided. We're literally divided. And so the, that that funky melding doesn't happen in the same way. Um, no. And I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to be too precious about it. Um, no, but it is special. I mean, it, it is, special. is special. That's partly why people do theater. They're, yeah. I mean, I was going to say they're extroverts. That's not really true. Some there's some actors that are introverts, but there mm-hmm. is something like I when I was younger, I couldn't wait to get to the theater. It it had nothing to do with performing. I literally just wanted to plug into how the place smelled. Like I did mm-hmm. theater in a parks and rec department it was one of my first community theater um, experiences, and it was so special to me. There's just you can't replace it. It's like Oh, I hate to say this. It's going to sound terrible. You know, one of the symptoms for some people with COVID is they lose their sense of smell and taste. Mm-hmm. And it it it's a little bloodless doing it through technology. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. You can't smell it. You can't smell the other people. You can't smell the dust. You can never get out of the carpet, you know, and, yeah. you know, it's, you're, it's like you're robbing some of the senses um, from the experience that makes it a whole person, a whole being experience that theater is. Even film doesn't do that. It's a shared experience. Film is shared if you're sitting next to somebody, but it's still not the same. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Hmm. Bummer. Yeah, I know. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. Sorry. You know, the, no, don't don't be sorry at all. I mean, I'm I'm responsible for my own feelings. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is something that I think people will 
treasure even more. I mean, can you imagine the possibility of an explosion of theater as opposed to it dying on the vine? People will will appreciate it so much more as an opportunity to share an experience either on stage or behind stage or in the theater. I think there might be a renaissance. Yeah, I agree. I I think that's right. I think... um at least in our in our limited uh, data sets of the people who are our patrons and subscribers to our theater, they are incredibly generous. They are um, champing at the bit for us to be able to reopen one of these days. They are, um, you know, we had to close our season with two shows left. Actually, the um, the fourth show of the seat, fourth fourth or fifth show of the season was is a set was on stage and they were getting ready to go into tech when everything got closed down, um, that set is still on stage, which always makes me a little sad. Um, mm. And then I was going to direct the last show of the season, which of course um, was never going to happen, but the, um, you know, our subscribers donated their subscriptions back to the theater. People have continued mm. to give to the theater. You know, it's, it's, um, it's a real, uh, a real sign of hope and optimism for the future that, um, that the theater will still be there on the other side. Yeah, for sure. I'm just going to mute myself for a second. <laughs> There's something going on outside. I can't hear it for what, it, for what it's worth. Some, yeah. Sometimes I've done recordings where I think that maybe it won't pick it up. And then. And then there it is. And there yeah, it is. I, no, I can't hear it. My neighbor has a two-year-old. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and they're outside um, talking about something, but it's okay. You know, it's, it's urban living. You know what? I'm not going to even try Sorry. and worry about, it. you know how it is when you're trying to edit something and, you can't make it perfect and no, you I'm can't. not a sound That's engineer, true. everybody. I am a podcaster with some limited skills. <laughs> More important, what we're talking about that we're connecting about this. Oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> um, oh, yeah, I was. Uh, did, so what does your theater, does your theater have a focus uh, of the kind of when you when when things before the world fell about apart right. i'd say what kind of theater were you doing what kind of shows um, were you producing we do five or six shows a year they are um often what i call plays that are in the national conversation so um usually small cast um we have a a, a variety of like plays that would be done in really major markets, um, maybe the year before or two years before. So things that would have been nominated for Tony's and Obie's. Um, and then we do every now and then, like we have, we do very few musicals because they're very expensive and, and because we have a, a, a small space. Uh, but every now and then we have done a musical and that those are always fun and, um, a little something different. We've done a lot of Shakespeare. My husband and I are both big um, Shakespeare nerds. And so, especially early on, we did a lot of Shakespeare. In recent years, we have done less or we have, we've moved it to a different program. So it's not so much on our main stage. Um, yeah, just a little, a little smattering of everything. Okay, I can't help myself. I have to ask you if you've seen Slings and Arrows. Yes. Of course. <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> yes, we we uh, 
we relate a little too much to that opening scene of the artistic director plunging the toilet. It's like, oh yeah, that's, we've been there. Yeah, that opening scene, I'd forgotten. I, I watch it, like I give it a couple months to let kind of like the fallout go and like hopefully I'll forget something that happened and then I watch it again and I usually kind of binge watch the whole thing. So good. Um, have you seen the extras? The extras are not that great, but they are interesting, especially as a theater maker. I don't know if I have. Um, there, there is one disc that's dedicated to uh, to kind of interviewing some of the cast members and, oh, and cool. some of the writers because Susan Coyne, who plays the the associate director, she's always talking about her her title, right? She's one of the mm-hmm. writers, and Mark McKinney, who plays mm-hmm. the you know the the suit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, um, oh, shoot, I stumbled over this last time, too. There's a third fellow, and he has one small part in the episode where they, uh, where they, where Paul Gross teaches a bunch of corporate stiffs about Shakespeare. And mm-hmm. he, he does a monologue, and I forget his name, but he also wrote The Drowsy Chaperone. So he's oh, cool. well known. But they specifically, and I think you know this, they specifically, they wrote the three seasons ahead of time which is very rare at mm-hmm. least in in the u.s they don't do things that way and they designed it to be the man's early life his prime and his doddering old age right because they have the shakespeare's mirroring their lives but mm-hmm. it's also that's the journey they never i did not it. know that that's so cool yeah so mm-hmm. you start out with ha- uh, hamlet you know, a young man, and then you have Macbeth in his prime, and then you right. have Lear, Lear yeah. at the end of his life. Oh, clever. It's, yeah, it's very, very They're clever. very smart. Yes. yes. Smart. Um, in one of the interviews, Susan Coyne um, talked about how apparently there was a Latin American country that did a version of Slings and Arrows. I've never been able to find it, but she said it was really good. <laughs> I would love to see it. So cool. I haven't been able to find it. I just not little little note there, but um, yeah, Shakespeare. Shakespeare's a tricky beast, you know. Um, yeah, not done very well, but I have to say, slings and arrows for anybody who watches it. They really, they know how to do it. Um, uh, the woman who plays the kind of the prima donna, she uh, uh, in her other part mm-hmm. of her life, she teaches school children about Shakespeare. In real life. That's what I did um, when I worked for the National Shakespeare Company. That was my job for five years. Teaching kids Shakespeare. Oh, that's mm-hmm. fun. This is going to be really I fun. I mean, there were parts of it that were great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, there's probably some, do we really have to do Shakespeare? But Unless they were like really into it. I mean, were you talking to kids who were into it or? Um, it really varied. I mean, we, I ran an education program. And so we went, uh, this was when I lived in New York and we were, we went all over New York, New Jersey and Connecticut, um, touring Shakespeare productions and doing workshops. So we got um, some who were super into it and others who were more into it by the end of our work with them. Let's put it that way. That's good. They went on a journey and, and if <laughs> they did. Else, they'll, they'll appreciate live theater or, or the greats some of the British stuff that you can see now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I found a video online on YouTube of all things of Judy Dench being coached by, I can't remember his name. I think he directed her in a lot of Shakespeare when she was younger. And it's kind of uh-huh. remarkable. He's sitting right next to her as she's doing this scene, rehearsing the scene. And then 
she would just kind of look over at him at, at some point and, or he would side coach her. It was, it's very mm-hmm. interesting. You should look for it online. If I can I find will the link, I'll send it to you. It's, yeah, please. It's, it's Judy Dench. Come on. I know. <laughs> can't go wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you can't go wrong. Um, do you miss performing? Do you do any performing now? Oh, no, 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 like, no. I, and as I really became a professional director and the gulf between <laughs> what I could do as an actor and what the people I was working with could do as actors got bigger and bigger and bigger, <laughs> I missed it less and less. <clears throat> and what do you love about directing? Um, I really like, <laughs> I really like being in charge. I like being the person who's putting the whole, all the pieces together. Um, that being said, I really love working with um, with designers and with actors because I feel like at, when I'm at my best as a director, everybody's able to do their part to their best ability. So <clears throat> I'm not a director who's gonna, um, I don't prescribe, you know, I don't like, I don't pre-block things or figure out like, oh, they're gonna cross to the sideboard over here. Like we're gonna figure that out organically in the room. Um, with, with very few uh, exceptions to that. And then designers, I just, my hat is off to them. I am terrible at all of that stuff. So I really come in and say, here's what the play is about to me. This is the, you know, this is the feeling. This is the way I'm, I'm working my way through the story. And then, you know, show me what you got. Um, so I, one of the things I love the best about it is getting into tech when everybody's really hitting their stride and starting to see how the puzzle pieces come together. I just, it's wonderful. How much pre-work, well, let me start backwards, even from that. How do you decide to do a show? What is the process of you even selecting a piece? Well, when, um, so we choose a whole season, right? So there's, um, there are big budgetary questions. There are you know, it's like planning a menu, you know, you don't want everything to be the same flavor. So if we're going to do something really hard hitting in the October, November slot, then maybe the January, February is going to be a little lighter. Um, We have a real commitment to uh, female playwrights. And so every year, at least 50% of our productions are written by women. Um, We are, uh, you know, they're, they're just, they're all kinds of different things that, that come into play there. The other thing that is really important to us is um, that something is happening on stage that's not so cut and dried, that we're going to explore it, we're going to tell the story to the best of our ability, and then you're going to make up your own mind about what you saw. Um, so, and so that's, that's part one. Part two is, because I direct for my own theater, I can look at the shows coming up and say, um, I'm really interested in that one, you know, put my name down for that. And then sometimes my husband and I kind of duke it out because sometimes we want to direct the same things, but not often. I usually get to do what I want. Um, so, and for me, I'm usually drawn to plays where something interesting is happening with language or structure that, that that's really intriguing to me. I really like um, when they're going to be interesting problems to solve. Uh, it is less interesting for me to direct something that is a lot like something I've done before. Can you talk a little bit more what, when you're talking about structure? What is you? What do you mean by that? Um, like we, I directed a year and a half ago. I directed Frost Nixon, which uh, most people know from the movie, <clears throat> but was a play first, and it is actually 
very cinematic in structure. So there, and um, in our space, you, we really had to figure out how to highlight one of the things I think is really important about that script, which is that it's happening, a lot of, of it is happening on live television. So how do we point that up? How do we point up that the um, these interviews that happened with Nixon were uh, a, a, a kind of a, a brick in his the path of his legacy? And so part of the the problem solving I got to do was figure out um, figure out how the structure was going to inform the design of the play, just as an example. That's really interesting. That must have been fun. I can kind of it was imagine. fun. Did you yeah. kind of set up some of it as like a uh, an actual studio, like a TV mm-hmm. studio of the period? And it'd be yeah. inter- it's interesting because as an audience, you're having kind of a a layered experience because there's 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 the I'm watching a play versus the sense of there's a sense when you watch TV, there's a distance. So if you if you if there are monitors, I don't know if you had monitors so they could look up at we a did. monitor. Yeah, we did. Then you're having an even more you're having a different experience. It's even more separate. I don't yes. know why. Well, I mean, obviously there's this live thing, but it's also bigger. So is that what you kind of mean by cinematic? The different ways you're viewing? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. and then the scenes are also very short and intercut with each other in a way that we think of as being more cinematic than like a long talky play. Okay. It's interesting that you would call something like that talky, I mean, a cinematic, because I actually haven't seen it. I should see it. But when you think of two people talking, I don't think cinematic. Um, you should watch the movie um, <laughs> or read the script either way. But there's there's a lot to the play that's not just two people talking. It's actually way more people. It's not just Frost and Nixon. There are a lot of other characters. It's all intercut. I am going to have to jump on another call. Absolutely. Thank you so much for for having the call with me. Thank you, Heather. This was wonderful. Thanks for asking. You're welcome. My pleasure. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for sharing your time with us today. I hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as we had making it. Check out the show notes for info and links mentioned in the show. You've also been listening to Scott Joplin's The Strenuous Life from 1902, generously provided here by Ragnar Helsbong's wonderful website, ragsrag.com. Share the love by giving us an awesome review and rating on Apple Podcasts. And please pass the show around to your friends and family. And remember to subscribe here wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you want to get into the act, like the Geeks in the Green Room Facebook page. I'm your host, Heather Morrison. See you next time on Geeks in the Green Room.